If you would turn to Judges 6, I want to finish up what I wanted to say there. And the title of the message is Gideon, My Strength is Made Perfect in Weakness, Part 2. Be in Judges 6 again. And let's uh, bow our heads and go before the Lord, the word of prayer. And Father, we come before you, Lord, here as a church, and I ask that you'll speak to all of us, Lord, to speak to our needs and show us our need for you most of all and just cause our hearts, Lord, to be stirred and to want to draw near you and to look for you to be our strength and our source in these last days as we just heard. And we thank you and I thank you, Father, that you'll do that for us and speak to us today and that your presence will be here with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, the famous campaign slogan that we're hearing these days is Make America Great Again. And I would just ask Mr. Trump, you know, how is that going to happen? What's behind when you're making that statement? Is it going to be by our willpower, by our resolve? Because I think here in America, we tend to forget that we are entirely dependent on God. Don't we like to think that's the way we've grown up, that Americans are self-sufficient, that rugged pioneer spirit we have, and we can just get through any natural disaster that comes our way with our technology, our resources, and we do seem to kind of overcome and roll on when we have hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts. We somehow manage to get through all that, right? And we think we can conquer disease through our health care and exercise, and just by our hard work and sweat, you know, we will prosper. But God is our creator has made us utterly dependent on him. And it doesn't take much to put our complete weakness on display. Because we got some droughts that are here going on in America for a long time out west, and no technology is going to overcome years of drought. And a tiny microbe can still take down the stoutest athlete in just a matter of weeks. And when the economy collapses, there is no amount of hard work that's going to overcome a depression. And so we do well, I would say, to heed this warning in Deuteronomy 8. And the Lord said this to Israel. He said, when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord thy God. And you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. He says, but you shall remember the Lord thy God. And here's what we all need to remember. It is he that gives us power to get wealth and health and anything else it is that we need. And we're going to continue to see today that God's grace, it shines the brightest when his people are in a total awareness of their entire weakness and dependence on him. That is when his grace shines the brightest. And we're dependent on him in everything. So listen, we live in this state of technology here. And it's easy to get so caught up in that, but there are no amount of Apple products that are going to overcome our basic needs. You can have all the latest Apple products and whatever you want to talk about, and guess what? You still have to eat, you still have to drink, you still have to breathe air, and only God can provide that. Technology doesn't give us all that. We haven't really changed that much. In fact, we haven't changed at all <laughs> as far as our needs. But here... Pride, though, will deceive us into thinking, as Americans especially, that we can handle any situation in whatever comes our way. But listen, I would say take a look. Take a sneak look at the book of Revelation and the great tribulation. And as we just heard, it is just around the corner. Trust me. Just around the corner. And see how the world copes 
when the common grace of God is withdrawn and when he is no longer sending his reign on the just and on the unjust. Because some of the things it talks about there, two-thirds of the world's water will be turned into blood. And, you know, that is one thing we take for granted here in America especially. You go over, I've said this before, but you go over to Europe. Now, one thing they're oppressed with us about is our availability of water. You go over to Europe, and they are stingy with their water. You have to pay to use their public restrooms. But we just got it running out our ears. We leave our hoses running all day and don't think a thing about it. But two-thirds, you think we have to have water. We're 98% water. Two-thirds of the world's water is turned to blood. One quarter of the earth, it says, will be killed by war, hunger, death, and wild animals. Do you know how many people that is? Two billion. That's a quarter of the people on this earth. Two billion people at that time are going to be killed by hunger, war, death, and wild animals. Hail the size of 100-pound boulders will fall. But that's what it says is going to happen, 100-pound hails. And what's it going to cause men to do at that time? It says they will blaspheme God because of that coming on them. And it talks about creatures that will inflict severe pain, it says, like the sting of a scorpion. And it says men will want to die, but they won't be able to. It says, in those days shall men seek death, and they shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death will flee from them. And another thing, so we think our economy is so great and we can just keep going, chugging along and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Well, it talks about in the book of Revelations, the world's economies, they collapse literally overnight in one day. It says this about the great city Babylon, how much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. And God says, therefore shall her plagues come in one day. Death and mourning and famine and she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord who judges her. And so the point I'm trying to make is when the tribulation is all over with, when everything's been said and done, you know what the world is going to realize? How utterly helpless they are without God. And another thing they'll realize is the full cost of sin. They'll realize it then. But contrast that. So we're saying the world is proud and independent and God will show them one day, oh no, you are totally dependent on me. You've been worshiping the wrong source. <laughs> but contrast that, the pride and self-sufficiency of the people that don't know the Lord with the Apostle Paul. He's our example. And it says he boasted but not of his greatness, not of his ability to cope, not of this steely resolve he had that brought him through his trials, but he boasted of a life of utter dependence. That's what we're talking about, our weakness, our dependence, that God's power can be manifested and his grace manifested in our life. Listen to what he went through and what he says about it in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prison more frequent, in deaths oft of the Jews, five times received I, forty stripes save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep, 
in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, by perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And he says, besides all that, like that's not enough. <laughs> he says, those things that are without, that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Listen to what he says. Who is weak, he says. He got through all of that. He knows he didn't get himself through that. He says, who is weak and I am not weak. He says, if I will boast, I will boast of the things which concern my weaknesses. And that's his thorn in the flesh. All those things he suffered. Depending on the Lord to help him cope. And at times, he's saying it seemed like it was more than he could handle. And that's the way it is sometimes for us. It seems like our trials are just more than we can handle. And listen, and they are. They are more than we can handle. But God's word still stands, and it says this. Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And that's what we're talking about today. And so Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, he says, I take pleasure in weaknesses, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He's saying, that is when I know the power of God in my life, when I feel the weakest and have the greatest need and I'm suffering persecution. And so listen, all of us, as I ask for a show of hands, everybody in here will say, yeah, we want to experience the grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. But listen, it is never poured out on the proud and independent. But who's it poured out on? We just read the humble and the weak. We said last time, those in Revelation, he said those with a little strength, a micron of ability that they feel like they have. He says that is the ones that he pours his grace out to as they look to him. And that is the picture that we have painted here in Gideon's life in Judges chapter 6. So looking at that, we know those first 10 verses, what's God trying to show Israel here? He's saying, you can't live a life independent of me and of my laws and worship other gods and then expect my deliverance and presence. And look, he says that in verse 1. Judges 6.1, it says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Midians for seven years. And I'm telling you, being delivered into the hands of the Midians for seven years was a miserable existence for them. Every year around harvest time, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and others, they would invade Israel. They'd steal their crops, their livestock, bring their camels in, and let them graze, and they basically destroyed everything on their land. Nothing was left. And Israel had to hide in the mountains, in the caves, and in the dens. And that's seven years. That is a long time to live on nothing. And they were starving, literally starving. They had nothing to live on. And look down in verse 6, Judges 6.6. 6. And they got to this point. It says this, And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And other translations will say Israel was brought very low. And in our terminology today, we, I would say they were brought to rock bottom. That's where they were. 
rock bottom. And let me ask you, is rock bottom a good place to be? Well, I'll tell you what, it is for an alcoholic. If they don't reach rock bottom, they're just going to keep on drinking. And it is for a drug addict. And I would say it's good for a sinner. has got to be at rock bottom. Because when you're in that dark pit with no way out, God is trying to do what? He's trying to, like he is with Israel here, he's trying to get them to a place where they'll cry out to him. It took seven years for him to get them to that place. And they finally did cry out to him. And you think, man, they're thinking, how cruel can this God be? Seven years letting these people oppress us. But it's love that brings us there, and it's love that brought them there. Because what's he doing? He's showing their utter weakness living in sin. Their utter weakness and subjection to the powers of darkness without God. Their utter helplessness to deliver ourselves. So he's trying to bring us to a place we cry out, my life is miserable. Help me. And so listen, because they are God's people, down in verse 10, he's saying unto you, I am the Lord your God. He did what to him? He sent him a lifeline to get him out of that pit. And the lifeline he lowered down to him was God's word, and it came from a prophet. That is how God spoke to them, and he wants to bring them back. So it says in verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Well, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so what's he telling him? He's saying, I delivered you all. I redeemed you all from Egypt. And I've delivered you from oppressors before, from the Egyptians themselves and from others. And he says, I was glad to do it. God's telling him, I gave you the land to live in. I am the Lord your God. And he's asking him, so why are you serving Baal and Asherah, the gods of the Amorites? Why have you not obeyed my voice? He's asking them, and where has it gotten you? They're impoverished. They brought to rock bottom. They're crying out to him. And that's what happens. Sin will bring misery. And God will allow that misery to come to bring us to rock bottom, like we've been saying. Allows us to become greatly impoverished. To see how helpless and weak we really are to cope with our lives because of the sin that we've let in. So I would ask you, some people in different degrees, maybe you're in here, you're miserable today. I don't know. Wake up every day wondering, how am I going to get plundered today? That's what happened to Israel at that time. And so maybe it's just one sin that's got you brought down. But listen, that's the way God works. That's what he did in the story of the prodigal son. That's what we learn in that parable. So he's trying to cope just like Israel was for seven years. He's trying to cope for years after his money ran out, the prodigal was. Trying to cope. And he's living a miserable existence. He's starving just like Israel was in our story here. The prodigal was starving. He's living on empty pods. No nutrition, nothing to live off of. And God did that. That is how he brought him to his senses. He finally hit rock bottom. And maybe that's you today. So listen, in 2 Timothy, it says this, The servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance 
leading to the acknowledging of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him at his will. God wants to deliver you. He wants to grant you repentance. It's just a matter of heeding his word. That's what we're saying here with Israel. And what is that word? It's the same word it's always been. It was the word it was to Israel back then, and it's the word to us. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I commanded you. He says that it may be well with you. That was his word to Israel. That's the first thing we see there. Brings them down to utter weakness, impoverished because of their sin. They have to see that, and only God can deliver them and help them. But they've got to turn their hearts back to him. And the word, like we said, it's repent. That's the key. That's the answer for them. And so he graciously is preparing their hearts for deliverance after they've cried out to him. And he next displays his grace by doing what? He raises up a deliverer, a judge. But guess what? To fit our theme, he's a weak one. Right? Look what it says in verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, Gideon, and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And like we said, Gideon was hardly that. Right? Because the first picture we see of Gideon there, he is just like the rest of the people. It's not like he's a leader that's waiting to come and lead the people. He is just like all of them when the Lord appears to him. He's down in that wine press hiding in fear. Because that's not where you thresh wheat. You go up on the top of a hill out in the open to thresh your wheat. But no, he's down there trying to do it in a wine press. I mean, how much wind do you think was blowing down there? Not much. He's living in fear. And he has no expectation or hope of God's help. Just like everybody else at this point. But yet God says, calls him a mighty man of valor. Tells him God is with you. And so then he asked the question of the day. Now, whether he said it in a smart, aleck way or not, I don't know, because you don't get that out of reading the words. But the question of the day, the big question is, where is God when you need him? That's what he's saying. He doesn't know yet this is the Lord speaking to him, the pre-incarnate Christ. He just it's some kind of prophet or messenger that has come. He doesn't know. And he says, you're going to tell me that God is with us? And he's like, then why are all these immigrants coming across our borders? What's the deal with that? You know, he says, God has forsaken us, is the first thing he says. He's forsaken us. He's not helping us out at all. And you're saying he's with us? He asked him. But he says, that's not even bad enough. Now he's delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And he's raising that question, where are all these miracles that we've heard about, that our fathers told us about? And the third thing he says is, oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to tell me that I can deliver these people? He's saying, I'm nothing. He's saying, my family is dirt poor of all the people in Manasseh, and I'm the least of that family. He's saying, there's nothing in me. How do you think this is going to happen? I'm going to deliver this people. So listen, here's the picture that we have of Gideon. Here's the picture that's painted of him at the beginning. He's fearful. He's full of doubt. And he's very insecure. That's what you're seeing there, you know, and that's just who you're going to pick to be your team captain. You know, that's just who you want to be the general to lead your army, right? Somebody that's that way. You know, I'm scared to death of the enemy. Your general's telling you there's no way we're going to win. And with my background, we don't have a chance. I mean, in essence, that's what Gideon's telling him. See, I don't have a chance. But yet, what do we see there? He's God's choice, nonetheless. 
with all his fear, all his doubt, all his insecurities, because of his ability? Is that why he's God's choice? Is that why God says, you're a mighty man of valor? No. How's he going to be equipped? Well, look in verse 12. Three times he tells him this. What does it say? The Lord is with thee. That's what makes him a mighty man of valor. And look in verse 14. It says, And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And look what he says at the end. He says, Have not I sent thee? In verse 16, the Lord says to him again, Surely I will be with you, and you shall smite the Midianites as one man. And so what is God's answer to our fears, our doubts, and our insecurities? What's the answer? We just read it. It's his presence, his presence with us. So in Romans 8, when the Apostle Paul talks about all the things we have to overcome, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, are those things going to overcome us? He says, no, we are more than conquerors. But how does he say we are? Through him that loved us because of his presence in us. That's how we're more than conquerors and able to overcome all those obstacles. And so here's the point. You know, we think that we have to be, here in the faith message, a picture of boldness, faith, and assurance before God is either going to use us or answer our prayers. Like, we have to be born that way. And I'm saying God doesn't pick people that way. He makes people that way. That's what we're seeing here with Gideon. Gideon was none of those things, this mighty man of valor, right? But what does his presence do when it comes into our lives? It changes us. It transforms us. It makes us what we aren't. That's what happens. And the reason is, is because God wants no flesh to glory in his salvation. And no flesh will, believe me. So it says what? He chooses the foolish the uneducated ones. That's mainly who the church consisted of. Slaves, poor people, uneducated, people that were despised. And why does he do that? He says to confound the wise, the worldly wise. God doesn't need their wisdom. He doesn't need their Apple technology. He doesn't need any of that. And it says also says in Corinthians that he chooses the weak. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? He wants to manifest his power and his grace to get the glory so God can get the glory. He chooses the weak of the world, the fearful and the insecure. That was me. I was the chief of the fearful and the insecure. Believe me. And why does he do that? He says to confound the mighty and the proud. So you're in here today and you want to trust the Lord and you're just saying, man, I want to, but I'm afraid of what might happen to me, my family or whatever. And I guess I'm disqualified. I just don't feel like I have faith. Well, what about King David? What did he say in Psalm 56, 3? He says, at what time I am afraid? I feel like, well, I need to get back and pray and fast more to get my faith up. Is that what he says? Is that what David says in Psalm 56, 3? He says, at what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. So it's a matter of your will. It's not a matter of how you feel. Certain circumstances and situations, to look at them, you can't help but have fear there. But you can still trust the Lord through that. It doesn't disqualify you. It's, I put my trust in you, Lord. You'll have to get me through this. 
And so three times God assures Gideon through the pre-incarnate Christ that he will be with him to deliver Israel. And Gideon says this, he says, look, I really want to believe you, Lord. Three times you've told me that, you've given me your word, but I am struggling. And he says, listen, can you give me a sign? He's asking for a sign. I mean, the word, isn't that supposed to be all we need? But hey, God's patient with us, and he asks for a sign. Can you really tell me, Mr. Messenger, Mr. Prophet, that this is a word that's coming to me from God? He says, I need a sign, because look, I'm just one man, and that valley is filled up with millions of these Midianites, Amalekites, and others, and I'm one man against them. I need a little more assurance that this is going to work out. And so what happens? The Lord's like, okay. And he just sits there and patiently waits while Gideon goes off and prepares this sacrifice. Probably had to take him a couple hours to get everything ready. And what happens? When he gets it all set up, it says that that angel of the Lord, the messenger, takes his rod, touches the sacrifice, and fire comes out of the rock and consumes it. Wow! And so what was that telling him? What was that sign? That was a sign to Gideon. And then he disappears. Whoa! Not there anymore. So that was a sign that that was God speaking. And it also shows him what? His power is present there and available, right? And also says, Gideon, because your sacrifice was consumed, you're accepted with me. You don't have to worry about that because Gideon, it says, was afraid. He realizes now, wait a minute, I have seen God face to face. I am going to die. He realizes who he was talking to, maybe even the way he was talking to him. Ah, and he had to speak assurance to him, didn't he? The Lord had to say unto him, verse 23, Peace be unto you, fear not. He says, you will not die. And Gideon built an altar, verse 24, there unto the Lord, and he called it Yahweh Shalom. Unto this day it is yet an Oprah of the Abizah's rites. And so listen, what do we know about signs? We don't talk much about that, right? Because we think, well, we shouldn't be sign seekers, and we shouldn't be in the wrong way, right? But many times, God closed his promises and his word with signs. And the reason is, he knows our frame, just like Gideon. And so listen to this, Mark 16, 20 says this, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Why did that have to happen? Shouldn't they have just been able to preach the word and that have been enough? Ah, but God says he confirmed that word with signs following. So what that does is that confirms that, hey, this is the word of God, just like Gideon was getting. This is the word of God confirmed with the sign. That's what was happening when the apostles went forth. This, this isn't their opinion. We're just not in a debate with the Muslims on which religion sounds more reasonable or intellectual or pleasing. Oh, we got signs following is what's supposed to happen. And in Acts 2.43, it says, Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Well, let me ask you something. Do you think it's wrong to pray for a sign? Do you know they did that in the early church? You don't have to go very far in the book of Acts. You're like, man, really? Yeah, they did. In Acts 4, after Peter and John had been beaten and they came back and they're sharing everything and they all lifted up their voice in prayer and it says this in Acts 4, 29 and 30, they prayed this, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs... And wonders may be done 
by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. All of the saints gathered there in the church of Jerusalem, praying together for God to grant them signs and wonders. Did God get on their case? What are you all doing asking for signs? You don't need signs. The word should be enough. Oh, no. Because you read right after that, you know what happened? As they gathered and prayed and say, grant signs and wonders to be ministered by thy holy child, Jesus, to confirm that word. And it says the place was shaken. The whole building was shaken. And it said all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. I'd say God wasn't upset about them asking for signs, was he? And then you read just a little bit later, as they went forth, it says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Many times God uses signs to confirm his word. Confirm his word that the apostles preached. And what's he showing them? He's saying, hey, God does love you. This word he's preaching, this salvation, he loves you, and his power is available to deliver you, to bring you that deliverance and healing that you need. When Barnabas and Paul went to Iconium and preached in the synagogues, it says this, Long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And I would say this, we need the same signs today to confirm the word. Not only for unbelievers, but to encourage the faith of believers. Nothing wrong with praying for that. That's what I'm praying for here. Because that would encourage us more than anything. And it would bring a little bit of joy back in our lives and our faces, wouldn't it? And our meetings would be a little bit more exciting. Amen. You know, one time... I was trusting a promise of the Lord. This is a little, a few years back. And I'd made my decision. I was willing to stand on the word alone, but I was struggling a little bit at the time. And we had a meeting, and this isn't something that's happened to me since even. And so during that meeting, this was a big deal for me. Well, it was a major thing I was believing for, no small thing. And this brother stands up and prophesies during the message. And it was something that I had been thinking about that week in relation to what I was believing for. And he prophesies that very thing, uses the very scripture. And I remember sitting there with my eyes closed. I'm like thanking the Lord. I'm like, thank you so much to just confirm what you'd been showing to me this week. And he knew how much I was struggling. And you know what happened? As I'm doing that, I feel somebody tap me on my shoulder. And I turn around. It's that brother that just prophesied. He didn't know a thing about anything. I had never told anybody about what I was going through. Taps me on the back of my shoulder and he says, the Lord spoke to me and wants me to tell you that what you're believing for, hold on to, it will happen. Now, I mean, I went from thanking the Lord to crying. And let me tell you, it happened exactly like it was said. But hey, that didn't get me upset. Oh, I don't need that. But that's what God will do for us many times, isn't it? We're believing for a big thing that's a big deal. And hey, he will give us little signs along the way. Somebody with the word, an encouraging answer to prayer. It may not be the big thing, but it's just letting you know, just hold on. I'll manifest that answer to you. That's our God. That's the way he is. So we're saying Gideon's a weak person, but God has chosen him just like he's chosen us. And he's going to do a work through him. And encourage him in his faith and do a work for his people. And that's what he wants to do for us. And he'll give us signs to encourage us. He understands our frame. That's what it says. 
Now, like I said, after he did all that, he spoke peace to him. And I think that encounter Gideon has with the Lord there, I think that's actually when he gets saved, in my opinion. That face-to-face -face encounter, and I think God changes his heart because of what happens next. And you know what happens next? I haven't talked about this yet. We've talked a little bit about all of what I just talked about the last time. Not exactly. I added a few things and changed it quite a bit. There's some things I wanted to say. But the next thing is God puts him to a test. He's going to test his commitment and his loyalty, and it's a dangerous test because the whole nation of Israel at that time was involved in Baal worship. And apparently his family, led by his father, had an altar and a shrine on their property that was set up probably for the whole town for Baal worship. And Asherah was his female counterpart. That's who she was. They had the two of them there together, all right? <laughs> Yahweh says, all right, Gideon. I've told you I've been with you. I've given you a sign. You've had this encounter with me. I'm speaking peace to your soul. And he says, I want you to prove your commitment. I want you to demonstrate your loyalty to God. And you have to do that before you can be used. And so what does he command him to do? He commands him to tear down his father's altar. And once it's torn down on top of that very spot, you build an altar to the Lord. And look, that's in chapter 6. That's in verse 25 and 26. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord sent unto him, You take your father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father has, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock, and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. And listen. Doing that and obeying the Lord, that was not an easy decision for Gideon. Now listen, God's instructions were clear, and they weren't hard to understand, right? But listen, I'll tell you what else was clear, the consequences. He knew that he would be a marked man if he did that. So let me ask you a question here. Why the test? Why did he have that test? And the answer is simple. You know what? It's the same for us. You can't have two altars in your life, and neither could he. He'd already put an altar there to the Lord, but then there's that altar to Baal right next to you. You can't have two altars. He couldn't, and the principle is we can't. That's what we learn. We get principles from these stories that happen with these men, and that's the principle we're seeing there. So we can't have an altar to the Lord like what it says there in verse 24. Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord. We can't have that. And an altar to Baal, throw down the altar of Baal in verse 25. And here's what we need to see. We cannot expect God to use us, to empower us, or even to save us when we are trying to serve two masters. When we have two altars set up in our hearts and in our lives. Because one of them has to go. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And he's saying what the same Lord is saying that to us, that he said to Gideon, we can't have two altars in our lives. That's what he's saying there. Covetousness, the Bible says, is idolatry. And that idol has to be torn down because you can't have money and the Lord competing for the loyalty of your heart. But listen, that's not the only idol. You know, at the end of 1 John in his epistle, the very last thing he writes, the very last thing is, little children, keep yourself 
from idols. So I like this definition of what an idol is. This writer wrote, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And I'll tell you, there's people that, man, they come to church, but there's other things they really want to do. And if they were deprived of doing that, it's what he's saying. Hey, my life hardly is worth living. I'm living. That's really what I'm living for. Yeah, I come to church, but I've got two altars set up. And God says, we can't have that. We can't have that if you want to be empowered by the Spirit, used by the Spirit, and have my presence in your life in a real way. One of them has got to come down. And so I would ask, what is that idol in your life that's competing with the Lord's altar? What's that thing that absorbs your heart more than God? It's like one man said, Baal, he wasn't a jealous God. As long as you had his altar up there, he didn't care however many altars were there. But God's not that way, right? He's not that tolerant. He is a jealous God, it says. You know, there's some guys, they don't mind having three wives, right? <laughs> or the wives don't mind that he's got other ones, you know. But a jealous husband, he's not going to be sharing his wife with her. He's not going to be like the Eskimos where you just share your wife with whoever. That's not going to happen, right? Demand total allegiance, and that's the way God is. And so that was his demand of Gideon to tear his father's altars down. And that would have been the altar, like I said, of the entire town. And Gideon knew that is probably going to lead to my death when I do that. And he was right. It would have led to his death if God didn't intervene. But what do we have here? What do we have? Gideon is going through his Gethsemane experience. And when Jesus went to the garden, he had to wrestle, didn't he, with where his obedience to God was taking him. He had to wrestle with that. It was taking him where? To his death, to the cross. And listen, all of us in here, if you're a Christian and you're serious about your Christianity, everybody in here is going to have garden experiences in their life. You're going to have to settle that your obedience to God is going to mean your death, either literal or spiritual. You're going to have to die to something. You're going to have to give up something you love because of our obedience to God. And here's the question. Will we obey? Gideon did. He did obey. And so, you know, a lot of these commentators, they'll criticize him, well, because he did it at night, tore the altar down at night because of fear. But here's the thing you have to see. I don't see anywhere in there that God told him when he had to do it. He just told him, you have to do it. He had to obey day or night. God didn't care, and so he did it at night. But he did it, is the point, right? We're back to where he's probably overwhelmed with his weakness again, his fear and weakness and you know, it talks about he had 10 servants help him. I guarantee you that whole process didn't take 10 servants. But he's trying to get a little moral support and strength. And sometimes, you need, I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he's wrestling in the garden with giving up his life, wrestling with that, what did he say? He wanted those disciples, please pray with me. He's asking them to watch and pray. He needs that support to be with him. And what does it say? All they did was fall asleep. And God did what though? He sent an angel to give him that strength and support he needs. And I'm just saying, if you ever had a hard decision you have to make like that to obey God and you think, I need prayer, please pray for me. I mean, a lot of people will ask people to do that. Can you pray for me? I got a really hard decision coming up. 
And listen, God will send us in any way he can, whether it's an angel or someone praying for you or someone having a word for you. He'll give you the strength, encouragement, and support you need when you seek him. But God delivered him. He honored his obedience because just like he thought when the men of that town found out what he'd done to that idol, they were ready to kill him. Look in verse 28. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down and the grove was cast down that was by it. And the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, well, it was Gideon, the son of Joash. He's done this thing. And then the men of the city said unto Joash, bring out thy son that he may die because he has cast down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the grove that was by it. God's grace and hand had moved in again, and there was apparently not just one conversion that happened in that family, but two, Gideon and his father, because his father, who was the former priest of Baal, proclaims, hey, wait a minute, does Baal, he's a god, does he need somebody to defend and save him? Let him defend himself if he's a god. Why do you all need to help him? And he turns the tables and he says, if anybody here wants to defend Baal by killing my son, he's saying, I will put him to death. And you know all he's doing there? This stuff had all been turned around in Israel. Because if you read the law, if you read Deuteronomy 13, it says that if any city or town goes and follows other gods and worships and serves them, that every inhabitant of that town is to be killed by the sword and the entire town is to be destroyed. They got it backwards. They were going to kill Gideon for what he did. And his father finally gets in line with the Lord. And what that does is that confronts Israel with the same choice that Gideon and his father had. They're either going to continue to worship Baal or they're going to worship at the altar of the Lord. They apparently were convinced to follow Gideon's lead. Apparently the Lord dealt with him and got through to him. Why? Here's how we know. Listen. The next year, we go on to read, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all their friends, they return for their visit, their yearly visit. And look what it says in verses 33 to 35. And it says, and then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He blew a trumpet, and Ebiezer was gathered after him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also was gathered after him. And he sent messengers unto Asher, unto Zebulon, unto Naphtali. And they came up to meet them. So what we're reading here is totally the opposite of what we read in the first ten verses of the beginning of this chapter. So now, what's happened? Instead of fleeing to the mountains, the dens, and the caves, what's Israel doing? They've had a change of heart, haven't they? God has done something to these people because now they are gathering to fight this enemy. A total change has taken place. And what changed, though? They're still totally outnumbered. They're still at rock bottom, and things in the natural have not changed at all. What changed? Look in verse 34. That's what changed. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet and that says, literally, the Spirit of the Lord put on Gideon or clothed himself with Gideon. The Spirit of God clothed himself with Gideon. And what has happened? 
God's spirit now has been joined to human weakness. And when that happens, when God's spirit comes on human weakness, which is what Gideon was, remarkable things begin to take place. That's what's happened here. And we can learn from this for ourselves. You know, look at the progression of Gideon's life in chapter 6. In verse 12, God promises his presence. I will be with you. In verse 14, he says, I'm giving you the authorization to act. He says, go in my name. Have I not sent you? And then, verse 25, his loyalty is tested, and he passed that test. And now in verse 34, he's empowered to act. And that is the principle of how God's presence and power is manifested in the lives of his people throughout the Bible. God's power and spirit joined to human weakness. And it goes through those steps. And we see it in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. At his baptism, God's spirit comes on him and he is authorized for his ministry, right? And then what is the next thing that happens? He's filled with the spirit and he's given that test. That same loyalty type test that Gideon had, right? He's taken out into the wilderness. He's got to pass those temptations. He's got to go through that test. And so do we. But he comes out of that wilderness, and what does it say? He's empowered to act, just like Gideon, the Spirit of the Lord. Just like with Gideon, he's empowered by the Spirit. He blows the trumpet. There's nothing in that trumpet that's going to call people. But there was an anointing on that trumpet. And the people, they come. They're responding to the Spirit of God on him. And it's the same with the Lord Jesus Christ. Comes out of that wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And here's what we read, Luke 4, 14. After he passed the test in the wilderness and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit into Galilee and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And people couldn't get enough of him clothed with the spirit of God. And Jesus had the spirit, though, it says without measure. Oh, man, what an anointing must have been on him. And remarkable things began to happen in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't, despite these books they've written, you don't read about miracles taking place in his life before then. But when the presence of God and the power of the Spirit, it's human weakness again. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful, but he still had to depend on the Spirit of God, just like we do. And things began to happen. And that's exactly what happened in the early church, the same pattern. Jesus promised his presence to his disciples, Matthew 28, before he left, he says, Lo, I am with you always as you go, even unto the ends of the earth. And they're authorized to act. Acts 2, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And then they have to go through their test. And what was their test? Ten days, they're praying for this promise to happen. Praying and fasting and looking to the Lord, testing their loyalty. There's only 120 of them. What happened to everybody else that had seen Jesus' power? But on the day of Pentecost, they're empowered to act. The Spirit of God comes on them, filled with the Spirit. And just like with Gideon, when the Spirit comes on him and the crowds gather, just like our Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit comes on him, he returns in the power of the Spirit, crowds gather. And on the day of Pentecost, when the 120 are filled with the Spirit, listen, it says this, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak 
with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And now when this was noised abroad, it says the multitude came together. God's Spirit's attracting these people. That anointing. Where did the 3,000, there's 3,000 people get saved out of this message, this anointed message that Peter preached. And like I said, when the Spirit of God comes on somebody that has passed the test, has gotten rid of our altars, it can happen to anyone in this room. It can happen to our church. Well, we've got to be willing to go through the process. And here's the results that happen if you read the book of Acts. Thousands soundly saved. Not these conversions you see in America. Say a prayer one day back in sin the next. Uh-uh. No, these people were soundly saved. Water baptisms take place. People baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. Miracles of healing and deliverance is going on. And there is a supernatural love that existed amongst that fellowship that only God's Spirit could produce. That's what happens. And let me ask you, were these people that this happened to, were they naturally strong? They're like Gideon. It's the point of the sermon. They're weak and fearful. Look at Peter denying the Lord. He's not your man of valor, was he? Cursing and denying the Lord. Everybody fled the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet those are the ones he used. His strength is made perfect in weakness. And that's what we're seeing here. And can't we see our lives in the story of Gideon? Boy, I see mine in there. And don't we see God's answer to what we need in this church in the life of Gideon and Israel at that time? As a bull acknowledge our sin, that's what Israel had to do. See our weakness and yet God's continuous promise to be with us. He's not abandoned us here. And if we'll tear down the altars that compete with our affection for him, then you know what will happen? this is God's word his spirit will fill us and empower us and remarkable things will begin to happen because that's the Bible story from Genesis to Revelation that's the pattern that's the principle so we'll acknowledge our weakness and need for him and embrace that fact embrace it and become desperate and then we'll understand what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And we want to avoid weakness. We want to avoid situations that make us utterly dependent on God, that are fearful. We want to avoid all of those. But he's saying, no, don't avoid them. Paul says, I don't avoid those. He says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's where the testimonies come from. The people that hold on when it doesn't look good, when the odds are definitely against you, and it's got to be God or failure, that's where the testimonies come from. And we don't like to be in those positions, but he says, I'll boast of my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It comes to us in our desperate weakness. That's when it comes. And you know what? If we really knew what we should know, that is at all times in our lives. It's not just every now and then, but we tend to think we're only having these weak moments. No, we're weak at all times. We just don't know it. And that's why we sing that song, I need thee every hour. Oh, that's so true. I need thee, oh, I need thee.
Well, listen, what we're talking about today, it's not what they call a pipe dream. Because I'm saying it's God's word and promise to us. It really is. It's this. It's Second Chronicles 7.14. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer when he's dedicating the temple. I have heard thy prayer and I have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. And God told Solomon, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send a pestilence among my people. In other words, it's a wasteland, a spiritual wasteland. He says, if that happens, isn't that what happened to Israel we read about in Gideon? And God says, if I do that, here's the answer. Listen, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, and that is word for fasting, humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then God says, I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That's his word. And I would just say, may God pour out his grace and mercy on us as a church and turn us back to him as Lord. Amen. That the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ. That's the promise in Acts. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful, Lord, that you don't call the, the wise, the noble, and the strong, Lord, because we confess we're none of those, but yet you'll call the weak, the fearful, the trembling. And by your presence and by your spirit, Lord, you'll do a work in our lives to transform us, to make us people that are willing to trust you. And I thank you that you'll do that for us, Lord, and that we can see through our weakness your grace and your strength is made perfect in our lives, that we have nothing in ourselves that without you show us we can do nothing, but we're utterly dependent on you, Father. And I just ask you'll show us that and show us that to help us get through these end times that are ahead, that your grace will be on us and you'll just draw us all closer to you in fellowship. And show us what those altars are that we need to tear down so we can experience more of your presence and power in our lives, in our lives individually and in our church. I just ask you to do that and thank you that you will in Jesus' name. Amen. Behold God is my salvation. Trust, I will not be afraid. Behold, God is my strength and my song, and He has become my Lord. Behold, God. Is my salvation. I will trust, I will not be afraid. Behold, God is my strength and my song, and He has become my. Let's sing it again. 
Oh. 